Blog Talk Radio. Today on Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics, we talk about the breaking news coming out of Ukraine. The government cracks down on protesters and a key, key decision about joining the European Union. We also take a look at the recent labor vote down in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the VW plant. Are labor unions dead or is this just a lull? We're also going to talk about the state parties. Are the state Republican and Democratic parties still relevant? If they are, why? We're also going to talk about political gridlock, talk about the influence of, uh, oh my gosh, we got so much to talk about. This is Backroom Politics. <laughs> Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And we're here live at Chili's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, uh, live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me, as they do every Tuesday here at the Round Table, downtown Washington, to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How are you, Justin? Uh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. To my, to my left again, across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Are we enjoying the snow around here? It's, it's uh, snowshoe. That's <laughs> yeah. the new word for it, snowshoe. Uh, what we've got is also across the table for me. He is a former congressional staffer, longtime political input, or longtime political pundit, longtime campaigner. He is uh, Democrat uh, Dan Lipner. Hello, Dan. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. You know, you go to Florida for one week, and all of a sudden your brain's fried. It's amazing. That's my home state. Don't do that. No, there's nothing wrong with that either. And across the table from me also, he is the longtime Washington insider, uh, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And good to, my, to be back. You know, good to be back. And to my right, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, longtime Senate staffer who has served under last count four presidents and many, many senators. He's the Distinguished and Handsome Fact Checker Fellow from the Stimson Center. Hello, Alan. Hello. Alan Moore. Hello, guys. Uh, we've got so much to talk about here, guys, but the big, the, the, uh, the, the big item right now is the uh, breaking and developing story coming out of Kiev and the Ukraine. Uh, as of right now, as of several, uh, a couple hours ago, the Ukrainian government has cracked down on protests that have been going on in Kiev, and it has now gotten violent. Our friends at CNN are now showing uh, what seem to be disturbing pictures of a large fire in uh, the middle of several squares downtown in Kiev. Now, for those of you who have not been keeping track, let's talk about what's been going on. 
the, the idea of the protest is led by a large opposition, ironically led by former professional boxer and self-proclaimed political dynasty in the Ukraine, uh, Vitaly Klitschko. Uh, under Klitschko's leadership, he has started a standoff with the government, uh, basically govern or basically against the government's decision not to join the European Union, which has got several folks very upset. Number one, this begs the question, Alan Moore, when you, when you look at the Ukraine and you look at the stability or instability in the Ukraine, is joining the EU the right move at this point? And can the EU sustain another Baltic state in its midst? Well, the, the, the sad reality for Ukraine is they desperately need natural gas from Russia, from the Russian Federation. And because they need it, and because Russia has shown uh, the President Putin over the years of total willingness to, to turn the tap on, turn it off, slow it down, speed it up, change the prices, um, they have, he's got them, if you will, uh, by the proverbial short hairs, and it becomes really difficult for Ukraine to exercise the kind of independence that they would really truly like to have. And it's a massive country with potential uh, significant wealth. It's kind of the breadbasket of uh, the former Soviet Union. But they don't have any, uh, an, any, uh, any energy resources to speak of. So you, you consistently, constantly over the last 20 years have had this on-again, off-again battle they would love to join the EU, as some of their Western partners and former members of the Soviet Union have done um, in, in the sentiment of, of the people, but they have to be realistic, and they don't want to cut off their nose to spite their face. That's the heart of their problem. Well, you know, it, it's, it's ironic, because when you look at uh, the president, uh, President Yukoyevich, he froze ties and basically cut and severed off any possibility of the EU going in uh, back in late November, and in exchange for a $15 billion bailout that they desperately needed. Bob, we're seeing a lot more of this in this part of the world where these countries that are in desperate need of bailout, the EU is bailing them out, but after the bailout, they're saying, no, 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 we're still independent. Is, 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 there, is, there a is there a certain naivete going on inside the capitals of some of these Baltic states? believing that they can sustain even with the bailouts? Well, so many of those states are relatively small. Uh, they, don't have, uh, they don't have a lot of ability to stand up to Russia because they're not in a position to do so. Most of them get most of their energy from Russia. And that reality, as Alan says, is very significant. You're talking about... You're talking about uh, people that don't have any other access to, to natural gas or oil except Russia. And they are pretty much uh, in a position to say, yes, sir, when it comes down to what Putin wants to do. But, Dan Lipner, if, if, you look at, if, if you look at the energy that's surrounding them, I mean, Ukraine itself has its own deposits of minerals and oil and natural gas that the Western uh, organizations have tried to exploit, it seems that the dependence to Russia is just too close 
why would they sit there and think, wait a minute, we, we, we can't join the EU, that's going to take off Moscow? Well, because Moscow has been showing itself to be rather adroit at trying to reestablish the Soviet powers. I mean, remember the phrase, we are all Georgians now? And Georgia very much stood alone. So if you're the leader of Ukraine, your, your choice is, do you look through the West for help that probably won't come? Or do you look to the muscles that are get second flexed and do some pretty hard damage when there's no other help coming? But, but we've, we've got a situation right now where it's almost the country that wants to join the EU has pitted itself against the EU. You've got uh, representatives from the opposition led by Vitaly Klitschko uh, meeting with German Chancellor Angela Merkel on Monday. Chancellor Merkel's offered billions in 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 additional aid on top of the $15 billion that was offered by the EU, and it still has not quelled the opposition. Why, why would the opposition fight not taking that bailout, again, from the sustainable economy that is Germany? No, no, it's not the opposition. It's the, it's the, folks, it, it's the folks who are in charge. Um, that's where the, that's why, why it's the opposition. The folks in charge are, are, are pulled for political and financial, economic, energy, etc., and historical uh, reasons, to to Russia, it's the opposition who is is trying to is trying to break again uh, that that connection, um, and are getting violent, and uh, or not they're not they're not necessarily getting violent, but their but their revolt and marching in the streets has triggered violence, and just today something like nine or ten people. Uh, have have been killed. There was a there was a truce for a while, and of course we had this little this little dust up with the uh, the senior State Department official who basically said to uh, uh, f word the uh, the EU because the EU as as a group was not uh, assertive enough. So there is a you know there's there's a lot of complexity here that I certainly don't 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 claim to understand, but. It's ultimately a power play by by the Russians, uh, largely with their ability to turn and turn off uh, energy spigot and to affect the prices. But he, I mean, Yakovlevich has has never been seen as a puppet president of of, of Moscow, Congressman Al. But his leanings towards maintaining a strong relationship with Moscow has seemed to tick off many in what is a fledgling economy in the Baltic state. I don't know what would be the wise position uh, for that country on this issue. <clears throat> I don't know enough about it. But it does seem to me that, uh, that he is not unwise to be afraid of going against Putin, who is uh, a pretty tough guy. Uh, and... Uh, could cause him a lot of problems. Now, the people in the street and the opposition, uh, you know, don't have to deal with the reality of the actions that the government has to take. Governments, good and bad, frequently find themselves in the position of having to do something that is very unpopular in the street, but which is absolutely essential uh, to the country. Uh, witness... Uh, Passing the debt limit ceiling. <laughs> Dan Lipner. Well, well, no, I mean I was just going to agree that uh, looking at uh, recent history under Putin's leadership, I challenge you to find 
one international arena that Putin has interjected himself into where he has not achieved exactly his goal. And everything from Syria to the Ukraine to Georgia to Chechnya, there is not a place where once Putin has interjected Russian power that has not succeeded. But I mean, but let's be clear. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a country that's definitely divided. You've got the western side of the Ukraine, which is obviously more westernized, uh, more aligned to uh, integrating into the EU. But you still have the the the, the western, or I'm sorry, the eastern and the central parts of the Ukraine that are very much Russian speaking, still very much tied into the old Iron Curtain way of thinking, which. For that, you know, for that matter, Yankovic has been very much a part of that eastern and southern Ukrainian uh, culture. But at the same time, Dan Lipner, if you if you look at it, Putin's come in with 15 billion dollars additional. Uh, you've got on top of the fact that the Russian government bought three billion in Ukrainian bonds, which isn't exactly the world's greatest investment of capital. Uh, all of that seems to be. In Yakovlevich's corner, not a bad move as long as you stay loyal to that old Eastern Bloc mentality of Moscow. Well, and hence the, the politics of the street versus the politics in the back rooms different, being different. That Putin is buy, buying power where he can financially, and as we've also seen, and I, not to be ignored, militarily is also there as well. So the EU has shown itself to be less than unified in support for anyone. So who do you choose? The dictator who can, well, arguably, dictator who, who can do things unilaterally, or the democracy that is haphazardly showing quasi-support here and there? Uh, Alan Moore, when you look at Vitaly Klitschko, obviously very westernized, uh, a trained medical doctor. This is not an idiot, even for a heavyweight boxer, a horrible heavyweight boxer, in my opinion. But still, this, is, this guy's a very smart cookie, very well-educated, uh, it seems that he would be the type, at least we would hope, that would take dialogue over violence, but this has gotten out of hand. Well, it, remember, just because you can rally people and you can go into the streets to demonstrate, that doesn't mean you're opting for violence. It, it, it oftentimes will trigger a reaction from the police, the military, from the, uh, the, the powers in control, but I don't think you can, you can put... Uh, you can blame violence on people who have no other option but to rise up, make noise, go into the streets. Call Tubin. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> maybe the Arab Spring has now gone to uh, this country, and, and, and these people know about freedom, they know about democracy, they've had their... their, their, their um, hands tied for years and years and years. And I think there are a lot of people who would like to break out of that. And I believe that if, 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 if the government tumbles and if Putin doesn't send troops in and tanks, which he could do, uh, I think that the West would, Germany, led by Germany and others, would come to their aid and supply them with the energy they need and help them um, um, help them develop their natural resources. Dan, you disagree? Oh, I absolutely disagree. I mean, NATO has shown itself to be somewhat toothless. The, the, the Libya campaign where, lo and behold, where uh, NATO forces, other than, other than U.S. NATO forces, 
were shown to not have equipment, not even have the ability to provide simple air support for, for the Libyan rebels, it's suggesting that somehow NATO is going to come to the support, and it's not just going to be the U.S. coming there, and there's no U.S. interest to get involved with that. I didn't say NATO. I mentioned Germany, and there might be some other countries that would be interested in doing that. I never mentioned NATO. All right, Alan Moore, you want to take that? Well, only that, that the, the suggestion that, that Germany has got some energy to share. The problem, which they don't, all of Europe is dependent upon the Soviet, uh, on, on Russia and, uh, and Russian natural gas. They also import uh, oil. They, dis- they distill oil. They have, there's some nuclear power, um, but uh, natural gas is uh, what they all need, and it mostly comes from, uh, from Russia um, and, and other countries. There's, there's, besides which, there's no stomach. Look, look what, <laughs> as was said, Russia's had a, had a, you know, a kind of a dark, sordid, ugly, successful recent history in Syria, in Iran, in the Caucasus. Uh, nobody really wants to take them on, and Ukraine is, is, a, is a less likely place than some others, partly because it is so massive and because there really is civil strife, and, and no one wants to dive in in general, and they really don't want to dive in when there's, a, when there's in effect, a, uh, the outlines of a civil war underway with Russia on one side willing to do almost anything and play by any set of rules that they choose. Bob Hines. Nobody is going to help the Ukraine uh, revolutionaries or independence people, what do you want to call them? Nobody's going to help them. Russia's right there. Putin will do everything he has. The guy, the guy who is the president's name I can't pronounce, who is nothing more than a thug, uh, he was a usurper to begin with. He put in jail the previous president. She is still in jail. Uh, the, that was the last democratic government they had in the Ukraine. The fact of the matter is, he's just a little Russian puppet, and he's going to stay one. He's got the oil that he, and the gas that he needs. He's got the protection. Nobody's going to help him. And that's all there is to it. Just as simple as that. But, you know, in, a, in, a, in another telltale sign that the foreign policy of this administration is yet to get its act together, U.S. Ambassador uh, Jeffrey Payot, the ambassador to Kiev uh, from the United States, called for dialogue but also threatened both sides with sanctions. Congressman now, it, it's one thing to threaten a seated government with sanctions, but how do you sanction? How do you sanction a mass of protesters. Well, <laughs> is this one of the new ambassadorial appointments? <laughs> no, actually, Jeff Payot's been there for a little bit. He's been oh, there for I see. <laughs> but again... Well, I think that's a great question. We should ask him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Alan Moore, again, you've got what could be a solid uh, Western ally in the Ukraine with sentiment in the people that are that are pro-Western for uh, for all intents and purposes, however, it's this little slice of political uh, political dynasty that they still reach back. Right. They still get the Russian sentiment to them. Why can't Foggy Bottom and the State right. Department figure out that this might be delicate and that they're going to have to do a little bit of God forbid foreign relations? Well, they, I mean, they know it's delicate. I, my guess is that, but but 
they, they, we've got several things going on with, with Russia and with President Putin that for the moment are significantly more important than the Ukraine. We don't want to, we don't want to gratuitously piss him off. So we, we, we operate quietly, we operate in the shadows. My hunch is that the CIA is, uh, is fairly active in providing some support, but it's not, it's not arms but it's ideas, it's, it's money uh, to, to encourage the, the ongoing civil strife. It's just not military. We're not gonna, it's not going to be military, and we're not going to jeopardize the bigger fish, fish that we currently have to fry in these other countries by getting too overt and too aggressive uh, in the Ukraine, especially when our ability to influence events is so limited. Is, is Bob Hines, is that a result of our just fledgling foreign policy that our influence in this region or greater in Europe and Western Asia that desperate right now? Right now, Russia and Putin, in anything that he wants to do, is, is leading us around and we're trying to catch up. We're behind in every way in the Middle East with him. Uh, with, you know, there's nothing that we can do right now in these areas that he isn't, he hasn't stopped us from wanting to help in one way or another. He's, he's, he's winning. Simple as that. How, does Call he, how is he winning when he won't participate or had people participate in the Syrian uh, dialogue to try to come to some solution? He, he sits there and he has uh, people on the Syrian border, uh, uh, on the Romanian border and the Lebanese border who are starving and sick and won't do anything to, to help or make even But make Putin doesn't care happen. about that. He doesn't care about people. Yeah, but still, it, it, he is getting, a, 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 in my mind, a very bad reputation in the world. He may have a bad reputation, but everybody recognizes that he's on top right now. Hold on for a second. Dan Lipner and then Alan Moore. Well, without question, the current situation has has Cold War echoes uh, involved with it, but that's not really the entire issue. The bipolar world, which used to be good versus evil, the evil empire, as Reagan called it, isn't what we're dealing with anymore. The interests were simple. It's either us or them. But now now the Russian interests are clear. They want to continue their international push to reestablish their power base. But our, our interests are fractured in many different regions. Yes, we have our interests in democracy, but we also have our interests in our commercial interests, which extend to all of these areas. And also completely eliminates the fact that the American public has zero desire to get involved militarily in any of these places around the globe. That leads to a fractured, a fractured American public and a Again, a dictator who do exactly. Dan, are you, are you, just paraphrase what you're saying is it almost sounds like you're saying that that Ukraine could be a hotbed for what could be a larger, clear and present danger economy, economically rather, to Western interests. Absolutely. Interesting, Alan Moore. Yeah, I was simply going to say that 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 as far as Putin is concerned, it, it seems to me that that if he is perceived as an uncaring badass in the region, for him, that's win-win. He doesn't care about that. This is not a U.S. president or a European president who is standing idly by, not 
going all in to try to care about the six million people who have been displaced from their homes, the hundred and now 40,000, it's estimated, who have died, he is in, in a way that is going to allow Assad to continue in power. Uh, gee, he's not using chemical weapons. Wow, he wasn't really using them in the first place. Now he's taking barrels full of fuel oil, filling them up with pieces of metal, and dropping them on civilian populations so they explode, destroy uh, hundreds if not thousands of human beings as well as, as, as a lot of property. But that, we find that horrifying. Not so horrifying that we're willing to step up and try to do more to stop it. Horrifying nonetheless. As far as Putin's concerned, there's no penalty to him. In, in, in that regard, and his, his, his puppet in Syria, Assad, continues to hold on to power three years after Arab Spring and after we said, yeah, he should go. And two years after the red line that turned out to be wussy pink. Wow. Call to I think, I think, in my mind, there might be a change in the policy. It might be too late. But there could be a change in, in some of the ways that we're going to deal with the, uh, with the Syrian uh, situation. Wow. Interesting. Uh, well, yeah, Alan just in the last week, the president has started to talk a little bit about Syria again, partly because he recognizes, as we've said around this table, that, that Syria threatens to become President Obama's Rwanda, the part of his legacy where we look back and say, why did we let that happen? Why did we let hundreds of thousands die and and uh, uh I'm, I'm i'm glad that better late than never he's at least talking about it again after a after a significant period of silence uh on the situation i think is uh, i agree with alan about it but if you put this on a timetable that came <clears throat> under president clinton right we, we, we can't forget that there was a, a whole eight years in there in which it was President Bush, who I still maintain, if we had not gone into Iran, uh, Iran, Iraq, Iraq, a lot of things that happened wouldn't have happened, and we would have much more resources, money, patience of the American public, uh, and, and the, the whole world situation would be in better shape. This president was handed uh, foreign policy messes that he did not make, uh, and then, as the world tends to, it goes ahead and keeps creating messes. You know, Alan Moore got more than we uh, than we. Well, it's nice, it's 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 nice to know that the blame Bush line of argument has not died yet. <laughs> Even after five years, we're going to blame Bush for Syria, um, but. But in fact, the fact of the matter is that, that the Syrian situation is about three years old. It was part of Arab Spring. It was President Obama who said he needs to go. It was President Obama who said there's, there's a red line here. And it was President Obama who, in Bob's terms, allowed that line to go pink. Um, might the world have been different if, if we didn't go into Iraq? Absolutely, it would have been different. But we don't know how it would have been different. It's 
conceivable that things in that part of the world would have been even worse. We don't know. They would have been worse than in, in Libya. Libya gave up its, uh, its nukes. Uh, Saddam Hussein was the, was the official enemy by congressional action of the United States. I don't like the fact that we went in there and how we went in there, but I am not smart enough myself to suggest that, gee, if only we hadn't gone in there, then Syria might well have been different. And, 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 and other parts of the world as well. All right, Congressman Allen and Dan Lipner, last words. But, but if we hadn't gone in there, different kinds of things would have happened. For example, we would have had more flexibility to deal with uh, Arab Spring and might have been able to put a little more weight behind some of those countries that, uh, that were involved in that and may have a different situation there as well. I, I think you can't just say history started uh, last January and, uh, and blame everything on what has come since. Uh, Dan Lipner? Well, two things on that. So instead of blaming George W. Bush, how about giving a little credit to the other George Herbert Walker Bush for the New World Order actually seeing the, the playing field of global politics and the counterbalance that as loathsome as Saddam Hussein was, him being there as a power as a power in the region was an offset to Iran. When Saddam Hussein goes, Iran mysteriously becomes the, the sole power in the region, which has become its own headache. And this devolution that's occurred, and not to mention the now statement that we are no longer the shining city on the hill. We are no longer that credible voice in the region that we do things because it's the right thing to do. The Iraq policy, as we all know, has been a little suspect as far as our reasoning, makes us less credible. So what do you do after that? Interesting thought. Interesting thought. We're going to let that be the last word. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about unions. Unions have been in in the news lately between Northwestern University trying to unionize, uh, or the players trying to unionize Northwestern University, and the huge, huge impact of the VW Chattanooga, Tennessee vote that will uh, truly define how labor moves forward in the 21st century. You can always follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can always call us at uh, toll-free at 877-662-3713. Or you can email me, justin at backroompolitics.org, for any questions or comments you'd like to hear. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody, mild, medium, strong, heavy, 
However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Nah, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You can join the conversation calling toll-free 877-662-3713, or you can tweet or email your questions. You can tweet us at Backroom Politic, or you can email your questions to justin at backroompolitics.org. Uh, we're going to change, we're going to shift lanes a little bit and talk about the uh, labor movement that's been in the news quite often in the past couple of weeks since we've been gone. The big story and the big surprise was the vote that was taken by the uh, workers at a VW plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, Basically, the plant is three years old. They have been trying to unionize through the AFL-CIO and through the United Auto Workers uh, to get a unionized shop in what is a big right-to-work state there in Tennessee. Uh, The vote went down last week, and in a fairly close vote, uh, which which, uh, I've got the numbers here, in a a vote that came down to uh, 712 for versus 626 against the union. I'm sorry, 712 against the union, 626 for the union. Uh, This is a devastating blow to unions. On top of that, you've got football players on the varsity squad at Northwestern that are trying to unionize, saying that they are employees, not students, and that as long as they're making money off of their sweat and blood, they can unionize. So let's go back to VW first. Um, start, Bob Hines, you've got to look at the, at the AFL-CIO, Gary Trumka, as well as the United Auto Workers, they were really swinging for the fences trying to get a unionized shop in one of the first states that went right to work. 
Was that a really smart move on their part, or was this a huge risk? Well, I think it was a smart. They had the, maybe the best chance they could have had. They were talking with a company that supported the union. You know, the the uh, the the, uh, VW. the VW company has has you know has been saying for some time they wanted to have these these uh, worker groups. Uh, formated, formed, formed there, and they wanted to have a union. They were perfectly prepared to support it. They were perfectly prepared to say, this is a good thing here. In, interestingly enough, uh, by a, I guess about a 55 or a 54 to 46 percent, something less than 100 votes, over about 1,400, that uh, the union uh, was, uh, was not what the workers wanted. It's amazing. It's a very interesting vote because you had the company supporting the union the union working there as hard as they could, and they still, in Chattanooga, weren't able to get a majority. I think that's going to uh, probably uh, make the union think twice about trying, because I think that was about maybe the best chance they had in most of the in most of the country the company car manufacturers in the south. In the south, because you're because talking about BMW, Mercedes, Honda, Audi, Audi. Honda, yep, they're all down there. Exactly. And if you can't if you can't get if you can't get unionization support strong enough to get get a union vote in the in a place where the company itself is promoting the vote, it's it's it looks like it's going to be a hard slug. Dan Lipner. Yeah, let's not forget the other side of this. The the Tennessee Republican Party put more than a little bit of uh, muscle behind uh, keeping the union from forming, including telling some rather blatant lies. Uh, Senator Corker saying that if they voted to unionize the next car that VW was going to build was not going to come there, so much so that VW actually spoke up and said that wasn't true. Was Congressman Al, I mean, when you look at the power of the UAW, many, many people, both inside Washington and inside Detroit, actually give credit to the UAW and the AFL-CIO for helping keep the American auto industry afoot. They made several concessions. They worked closely with management to try and keep the three major manufacturers in Detroit solvent and afloat. But it seems that they're not getting any credit for that in Tennessee or probably in some of the other states, such as South Carolina with BMW and uh, South Carolina with Honda. If you roughly take the Mason-Dixon line, you split the, the places where unions are hated uh, and places where the unions are uh, able to function. Uh, why the South, some, something was said about this the other day that made it sound like that, that it was anti-American to have uh, uh, labor uh, organized. Uh, so <clears throat> I think you've got an unusual situation in, in, in the South. But, as one whose, I think, uh, labor record, uh, voting record uh, over the time I was there, 16 years, was probably almost perfect. I didn't, I didn't vote against NAFTA, but other than that, I think it was perfect. Beca and I did that because I believe that, the, that, that unions are the way that the workers can participate in the free enterprise system. Having said that, I have felt for years, 20, 30 years, that the unions were not paying attention to how they were viewed. 
they, there was much corruption in the, in the unions for many, many years. I think that's largely been uh, cleaned up, but the, uh, the, the stink remains. Uh, the unions are still playing with the tactics that they started with at the very beginning when they really should be modernizing their thinking considerably. Uh, so they've got a bad reputation, which uh, uh, they have done nothing about. And in fact, they have gone out of their way on many occasions to uh, to in- increase it, to add to the uh, anti-union feeling. The, now you're right that they did good things in Detroit and got very little benefit for it. But if if the union, I've always thought that the unions should have been working for this why not why not have union members sitting on the boards of these corporations so that they would know how much money they've got and they can tell whether uh, having such and such a kind of raise would break the company or or not so Wait. rather than this the old you know well, I, you, you saw this very closely in your old congressional district with Boeing when they made a move to South Carolina a very much right to work state caused the machinist union, which is very prevalent in Boeing and in, in western Washington state, to literally cause and, and almost disrupt some of what was going on there with the production of the 787 Dreamliner. Is, is that part of the fight that they've got to overcome, or was that just part of the tactic? No, that's part of what they've got to overcome. I can remember when I ran for, for Congress, uh, in uh, 1979, I remember going down for my interview with the Machinist Union in Seattle, and I answered all of their questions, and I happened to agree with them on all the questions they asked. So the guy sits back, he's just looking, you know, fat, dumb, and happy, and very pleased with me. And I say, there, there's one, 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 one additional thing I want to say. Uh, the head of your union has said that they will not support anybody. They're going to pick two or three issues every year, and they will not support anybody who doesn't vote with the union on all of them. I said, I think this is wrong. This is stupid. This is inviting every one of the people that might vote on all three to pick at least one to vote against so that they don't get the 30-second ad about the labor bosses controlling them. I think it's stupid politics. And I can't support it. And the guy looked at me and he said, oh, I wish you had said that. And I was not endorsed by the machinist team. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm thinking a couple things here. With regard to the, uh, the vote in, uh, in Tennessee, um, it, my understanding of what uh, VW said is we don't have any objection to them unionizing. They were not active in pushing it on the one hand. On the other hand, Let's not um, denigrate the workers and suggest that, gosh, outside forces, whether they were management or the union or the newspapers or the Republican Party, must have turned the day. We have 1,300 and some people voting. You don't think these people in the workplace understand what the stakes are? A lot of this is cheap. Do I want to have some of my paycheck go every, uh, every, every paycheck to this union. I'm not convinced that it's going to be worth my while. 
Now, as we said, it's sort of in the blood down there, too, that, that uh, it's, a, it's a right-to-work state. Uh, the UAW, before we break our arms, patting them on the back for their great work in Detroit, all they did was give less than everybody else did because the administration was, was currying their favor and cut a deal that, was, that favored the unions. Um, but I don't know that it was the unions who, who were doing that. I think that was, uh, that was what this uh, administration decided to do because it sort of owed the unions. Um, but the, the, the thing about Chattanooga, though, I think I, that I do agree with everybody is given the setup, uh, who the company was, the company's position, um, if, if, if they couldn't win this one, uh, they're going to have to think hard before trying again because it, they were unlikely to get a better shot uh, in the South uh, than, than this. Carl Tuvin. <clears throat> Two things. Number one, one, number one, one of the things that, they, that uh, the <clears throat> Republicans or whoever the opposition said about uh, the UAW is that the UAW bankrupted Detroit, and that was all over the place. Number two. Good point. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Well, right about that, wait, 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 Carl. <laughs> number two. Number two. Trump and the UAW unions have been losing members for years. True. And <clears throat> this was a, I think, a calculated situation that they were going to try to go into this this uh, uh, VW uh, plant and try to win, uh, they lost. They gambled. Uh, if they had won, <coughs> it would have been a real opening for, the, for yeah. other companies. Which is why they did it. Right. And they took a chance. Uh, <coughs> I think that uh, probably the UAW is going to take a look at what happened and, and the opposition and, and all that that came along and then try to figure out where to go next because they need members. They're, they're, the unions are dying to a degree. Dan Lipner. Well, a couple points on this. And while VW uh, is a not really the bad guy here, it's worth noting that the decline of unions has also been a decline of real income for working people in America. It's almost a direct correlation. And with new numbers, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, journal not exactly a liberal rag, that points out American workers are now the most productive workers in the world, still now taking home less of a percentage of the income they are helping to create. There's something there. So, yes, this is, this is a body blow we to call the that, We call that robots. <laughs> we call that robotics. Now, now, wait a minute. Going off of what Dan was saying, you know, when, you, when you look at the numbers right now, in private sector organizations, union membership represents – about 6.7% of the total workforce versus public sector, where it represents 35.3%. And that's according to our friends at, at, at the Wall Street Journal. When you look at those numbers, Dan, <laughs> subtle, Al, very subtle. When, when you look at those numbers, Dan, that, that's a glowing, glowing. That shows you that organizations like AFSCME, like SEIU, which are largely public sector unions, they seem to be maintaining it's the, it's the old school conservative, if you will, unions like the UAW, the AFL-CIO, the Teamsters, that seem to be hemorrhaging a lot in the private sector. 
are unions now just a voice for public sector employees? They're not. After the destruction, the very thoughtful destruction of unions brought about by the right, including, again, the lies told in Tennessee, this is not something to be glossed over, that, again, VW said was not true. The company spoke out on their own saying some of these claims by, again, Senator Corker's loudest voice was incorrect about things that would happen if they unionized. That response, and with private sector unions having weakness in fighting these issues, the voices, the number of voices fighting for workers is in decline. The leading only to public sector unions being the strongest voice left to sit there and vote, and vote on behalf and speak on behalf of working people. Bob Hines, when you, when you look, I mean, let's take, for example, the, uh, the Teamsters Union. The Teamsters Union has a voting population. Of that voting population, roughly about 48 to 49 percent of that are Republicans, are right-leaning, lunch-pale Republicans. Why has that not taken hold in a largely red state like Tennessee or a largely red state like South Carolina? They want the representation and the good programs that come from these unions, but there's still an avant-garde fight against unionized labor in these states. Well, I suspect a lot of it is just the culture of the states. Just plain and flat, that's, they, have, they have not had unions there generally. I think they like it that way. It's the culture down there. Now, that's either good or bad, depending upon your point of view. But the rationale for them is we like our independence, we like the way it is, and it's okay with us. And I think that it's going to be very difficult for uh, the, auto, the auto union, uh, union members UAW, down there, yeah. UAW. I think if, if you can't get it done in, 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 in uh, uh, Charlotte, uh, what, Chattanooga. Chattanooga, it's going to be much tougher in most of those uptown uh, plants in South Carolina, which are much more, cons- South Carolina's much more conservative than is Chattanooga. Alan Moore. Yeah, I wanted to. I was going to let it pass the first time, but since Corker was trashed twice, I thought, well, let's just think about this for a moment. Um, Bob Corker, I know the guy a little. Uh, he gets very good marks from Republicans and Democrats as a guy willing to work across the aisle. He's pretty careful. It strikes me that what he said down there, there's something else that doesn't add up that my hunch is he had some conversations with, with VW. He may, have, he may have pushed the envelope a little bit, but they put, they put the company in an awkward position of either saying, oh, yeah, he's right, or, well, it's not exactly right. There's something bizarre here. But what happened is whatever he said, VW came back and said, actually, not the case. <laughs> that was all done prior to the vote of 1,300 people. It's not as though those people voting weren't well aware of what was being said and what wasn't being said. But one of the things I love about Democrats is they <laughs> so constantly like to say of people who vote, oh, they didn't know any better. They weren't voting their interests. I love that because I think these guys knew exactly what they were doing and you filtered out all the information, made a decision and said, nope, not now. Here, here. Dan Lipner? Not well. Not quite exit polling that I, I would say is scientific. There was more than a handful of anecdotes from voter from people who voted in this union election 
that said just that. They were afraid of of not getting the next vehicle that BM, that VW is going to produce. And I, message think would, matters. I think that would be something that I would worry about if I were in that boat. But you VW met. wasn't spending money to get their message through. They the Republican were, Party of Tennessee, oh, yeah. the, the state the state that Al Gore used to be part of, that is, that is now solidly red, you think there might be some solid interest here to keep UAW out just to keep Tennessee red? Do you think that? Wow. Do you think VW might try to be walking its own narrow line here? I don't I mean, think VMW cares. I think VMW. <laughs> I think VW cares a lot. The fact, I think they the fact care of the matter is, a lot. they're they're working on their own economic interests. The fact that U.S. workers are as productive as they are, and more productive than German workers. Let's keep in mind what we're looking at here, and not exactly known for not exactly being their own industrial powerhouse, the Germans. The fact that all these German companies are moving here is something along the lines of U.S. companies that move to Asia, that we, that they're seeing a profit margin and things that can go on. But the German management sees that there is something to be said for a cooperation between management and the workers, that there is actually something at play there. Congressman yeah. Al, <clears throat> whenever I go off on a kind of a dreamlike concept of what might be going on with, with, with no facts to back it up. It is the gentleman who just had one of the great bad dreams for the Republican side without a single fact laying in it that just spoke. And I, I just want to point what? out. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. Are you accusing our resident fact checker of talking without I, fact? I, I, I think I think absolutely yes. And he's he's jeopardizing his reputation as the as the fact <laughs> deliverer. Wow. Maybe you could be a little more specific here. <laughs> this writ large broadside. I, I, I well, that's what I was saying that you should have done. Don't whether they're German or others, choose to come here. The, the reason that U.S. companies and German companies and Japanese companies and anybody else who makes, who makes modern cars these days is so productive, meaning the number of cars produced per worker, is because we've automated everything. Are you I made the comment about the Koreans and the Japanese are not automated? No. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is they're, they're, they're all moving in, in the direction of, of robotics. They're all becoming more productive. In America, we've, we've got the big cars where we, where we, in many ways, assemble smaller pieces, put together overseas, and we're largely 
the assemblers here, um, and we've got cheap energy over here. So there's, and we've got we've got huge subsidies that some of the states are willing to put up. But if, but if, all, if, if hold on, Congressman, we've got robots, and we've got robots. What what he said was that we are still more productive than the other people. Right. And what, also, what, they don't have to pay the, the shipment of cars coming across the Atlantic. Well, but you also have to look at you. You also have to look at companies like the unknown companies. You look at companies like Tata out of India, which produces cars on a level that is unbeknownst to anywhere else in the Western universe. Tata, their quality, Dan's no, laughing at me. Justin's talking about Tata's. Let the <laughs> Wait a minute, you're talking about, I mean, you look at a company like Tata, which mass produces cars at a level that nobody even thinks about comprehending, and yet this is some of the most unrobotic, untechnologically developed assembly lines in the Western or in any hemisphere. Yeah, and those cars aren't allowed in America because they, they don't meet any of our safety standards and safety requirements. If they wanted to, I'm sure they could. What he said was... Wait, 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 one thing. By the way, for the record... Hold on, hold on, Congressman. For the record, Tata owns companies like Jaguar. They own Land Rover. And, at, 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 I mean, these are, these are cars that are mass-produced under the Tata assembly production scheme here in America and in places like Great Britain. Yeah, but Land, both Land Rover and Jaguar have been, have the buckets been passed on both of them routinely <laughs> through many, many other companies have offloaded them. For well, yeah, look, look at the quality they had under Ford. My God, no, Jaguar no. was horrible. Yeah. As was Volvo. Look at Volvo. Jaguar was a quality vehicle in the 80s when they were independent. That's why everyone wanted one. <laughs> <laughs> so we had warranty issues. The big joke when new. Jaguar was acquired by Ford was, you're going to take your car to Jaguar to a Ford dealer to have him fix it? Yeah. <laughs> well, on top of the fact, as we talk about the unions real quick before we go to the top of the hour, uh, the Northwestern University football team now thinks that unionization is a good thing. Bob Hines, that, you're talking about Chicago. You're talking about the heart of union politics. Wait These guys are getting smart. Let me tell you something. The Northwestern football team is really amateur. So well, they, what? Don't, they don't want to. They, they, they're trying to organize. Are you, they are really amateurs. Are you, they win one oh, game a year. Oh, 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 one right. game a year. But okay, on top of the fact now, Not lately, they're serious big time players. But wait, 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 wait. How do I lose control of this, Christ, <laughs> folks? The question is, the question is though, is it, are are the players at Northwestern University are they right to deem the fact that the university makes a ton of money that they should be paid or they should have at least collective bargaining ability? In their playing for a university, they're students. First, football. Second, that's the facts. Don't let don't agree with that. No, they, they, they don't take classes they want to take. Football leads all. Not and I was shocked when I found out if football players get hurt, they get cut. Uh, and this is college football, right? And which is staggering. If they are student athletes, suggesting if they blow out a knee, they get to still go to class for free. However, that is not the evidence on the field, literally on the field. But, but Ellen Moore, when you look at it, I mean, the, the uh, National Labor Relations Board today was hearing the arguments 
for and against unionization of the Northwestern football team. How do you think, I mean, I know we're kind of, you know, handicapping this a little bit. Do you think that the NLRB might take into consideration this option of having the football players on a university team being able to not so much get paid, but at least to collectively bargain what the school does with its money? So I don't know what the law is. Right. But I like the idea of them being able to unionize. Whoa. Whoa. Wait, can we repeat that again? Wait, wait, wait. Absolutely. Damn right. Because right now they're ch- they are chattel in these Division I programs. They get, they, they, they get in trouble if they take a game-worn jersey and trade it for some, some tattoos. That happened at Ohio State. Um, and, uh, and I think that the whole way that, that, that college football is financed and who the beneficiaries are and who pays the, the price is, is disgraceful. So as far as I'm concerned, let them unionize. Let them make some demands. Give them some so, greater leverage. So the, football players at North, so the football players at Northwestern are chattel, but the employees at the VW plant in Chattanooga are not. The, 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 the workers in Chattanooga had a union vote, and they said no. How does that make them chattel when they say no? Congressman Al, last word. Thank God it's the last word. <laughs> <laughs> wow. With that being said, we're going to take a break here. It's top of the hour here at Backroom Politics, which means that we're going to cut open our cigars. We're going to order our happy hour drinks, and we're going to take it into the second hour of Backroom Politics. Again, you can join the conversation by calling us toll-free at 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions to me at Backroom Politics. Or email them at justin at backroompolitics.org. We'll be back in the second hour. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. back here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You can join the conversation by calling toll-free 877-662-3713, or you can tweet your questions to us at Backroom Politics or email me, justin at backroompolitics.org. Uh, change of lanes yet again, we're going to talk about the fact that the party might be over for the state political parties. Uh, in a in a really great great write up, our friends at Politico specifically, <clears throat> our, uh, our our uh, our friend uh, Byron Tao wrote a, a a truly insightful piece in Politico uh, yesterday about the last is it's the last call for state parties. Basically, the concept is the state parties right now are fledgling. They're hemorrhaging money. Some major parties in state levels are actually in a deficit that may not be able to be recovered from. Uh, I got to go to our, our in-house state party expert, Carl Tuvin. Carl Tuvin, you are the executive director of the state party of Maryland for the Democrats. Uh, you spent a lot of time there. This is a huge, huge problem for state parties nationwide right now. How desperate is the situation for state parties, in your opinion? Well, first of all, state parties have a, a, a role. <clears throat> state parties are, are the backbone of, in many states, uh, if it's set up correctly, the backbone of, of grassroots organizing in a state. And, and one of the main things that state parties have to do is register new voters. Now, I know there's all this ad coming out uh, uh, using cable TV and, and targeting and this, that, and the other. But the, the big thing, the other big thing the state party does <coughs> is get out the vote. And state county council, state legislatures, city councils, Congress, uh, all of them depend on the state parties to help them uh, with, their, with their programs. Uh, <coughs> Uh, state parties, you know, might be hemorrhaging uh, in some places, but I think that there's a need for a state party apparatus to to really make sure that the state state of Maryland has a ongoing um, political dynamic 
in registration and, and other political activities. Congressman Al. I, I think Carl is right. You need some kind of an organization there. But frankly, the state parties, in my observation, now I come from Washington State, which has a very weak party system for both parties. Uh, and, you know, people talk about, well, the party's going to put money into your campaign. Oh, no, we, we all put money into the state party. You know, uh, I, I think that in part the way they have been organized uh, is, is for the Democrats, I think George McGovern and his reforms of the party destroyed the party. Uh, it used to be that you had people at the elected precinct committeemen, elected as precinct committeemen, uh, with George George McGovern's improvements, uh, they couldn't even show up at the party caucus. They were not automatic members of the party caucus. And what happened during the, the, the great year of the hippies and what have you, they basically took over the Washington State Party uh, with people who you never saw before and you never saw again. Uh, and they almost... They almost nominated for the United States Senate a guy from Spokane, and nobody from Spokane who's going to get elected statewide. Uh, he was black. Uh, I hate to say it, but my state wasn't going to elect a black man. Uh, and who was the state? Who was the senator from our state that they were against? Henry Jackson, who won the general election with 82 percent of the vote. Now, so close. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, against a rational Republican at that. And so, if, if the parties are not doing their, 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 they should be doing nuts and bolts. And it's when they get off into starting to lead policy issues all over the place. Uh, that they get into serious trouble, I think. But, but Alan Moore, when, when we look at the transition of monies, you know, when we look at McCain-Feingold and some of the uh, political contribution laws that have been put out and the recent ruling by the Supreme Court, it seems that the super PACs, the super donors, have taken the role over from the state party levels of getting both federal, state, and even in some cases local officials elected, does, is that a concern? Are we dealing with the laws that have created this monster on its own? Well, I think it's clear that, that we have created a new legal regime that makes it even harder for the state parties to raise money. Al talked about how it was the candidates who had to give money to the party. The party didn't have any money. That was then. It's even harder today for parties to, 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 to gain money, and if they do... The kinds of people who come, there are people who want to get out the vote and work nuts and bolts. Um, there are also people who feel passionately about outcomes and about policy and about candidates. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that the state parties and the people who come out say, wait a minute, I'm not just here to serve some people with whom I disagree regularly. I want, I want a system where we can have some say in who the candidate is. Now, it creates these absurdities. The, the one Al described was, was quite, 
quite irrelevant. You know, a, nas- a, 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 a statewide hero, if not in some ways a national hero, Henry Jackson, is almost upended by, <laughs> by some guys in the party. Other states have had the same problem. We, we, we've, watched, we've talked about some Senate candidates in recent years who, uh, who on the Republican side, who were losers, and they lost say, uh, seats that, that, that could have been saved. None of that speaks to uh, you know, a powerful future for, uh, for the state parties. But, 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 you know, you've got Al, who lived with one. You've got talk, Carl, who ran one. So I would listen closely to, uh, to, to them yeah. on, uh, on this stuff because they really are. Experts. Yeah, Stan Lepner. Well, I can't speak to how the Republican state party infrastructure works, but I can speak a little bit to how the Democratic state party infrastructure works. And how, my uh, political upbringing was coordinated campaigns and presidential cycles, and I quickly learned that the presidential cycle helped create the, the infrastructure for the off-year election. And back to Clinton-Gore 96 in, down in Florida, a 50-50 state, which we also won in 96, um, Democrats control nothing at the statewide level. And going forward and from my last experience in Ohio, imagine my shock with the Obama campaign running completely independent of any party infrastructure, and then looking at, at the informa- information in front of us with Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, not exactly hard red states, Democrats control nothing at the statewide level. So I will actually point a jab here at the decline in the state party structure to how the Obama campaign to the, the president's run in 2008 declining the, camp, the, map, the federal matching funds that would have required a far more coordinated effort, at least on the Democratic side, to allow the state parties to exist and exert effort and exert power during the off-year election, which now clearly is not there. But, Bob Hines, you know, we, we've seen the advent of the Koch brothers, for example. We've seen the advent – don't shiver, Congressman Al. Uh, we've seen the advent of some of these – super PACs, i.e. Crossroads GPS on the Republican side. But we also, you know, we also see MoveOn.org. We also see uh, several other major PACs on the Democratic side. But when you look at the numbers, according to the article that was put out by uh, Byron Tao, you look at, example, New Mexico Democrats. He gives an example. $3,000 cash in hand, uh, but more than 30000 in debt. The Mississippi Democratic Party has... $2,000 on hand, but $6,000 in debt. Uh, these are numbers that do not sustain an organization that's supposed to be driving the political machine in these states alone. Are we, are, are we seeing the last call, in fact, for state parties, in your opinion? Well, I would hope that it is not the last call, because I fundamentally believe that it is important to have local political organizations. It's where candidates begin to be developed and be identified. It's where you need to be uh, having a, 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 a handle on what the issues are and what the state is interested in. And it strikes me that if we, if we just let the state, the state parties disappear totally, I think we make a terrible mistake as far as getting as many people interested involved and interested and paying attention to what is going on in the political world 
whether it's in your uh, in, in race for the mayor or the uh, county commissioners or the state legislators. All these things are important, and I think it's important as a as for those people who wish to be candidates or become active in politics at whatever level. It, it, it is it is the lower rungs of the ladder that they that they have to climb and. The state party is that is that ladder for them. Call Tuvin. It's interesting. Uh, it's interesting what was said about Ohio because uh, 10, 15 years ago, Ohio was one of the model state uh, state parties. In 1976, uh, when uh, uh, Mr. Carter ran for president, uh, somebody uh, was questioning me about you know not being a Carter person, and I said, well. I was in a little lit room raising money for uh, Senator Sarbanes, or Congressman Sarbanes, and it seems to me, if you look at the record, that Sarbanes brought Carter in on his on his coattails, and that partly was because the Democratic Party of Maryland um, had a system uh, and and a good candidate for the Senate that helped. Uh, by the way, uh, just break in real quick. There's breaking news coming out of Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, there are several explosions being reported inside the capital of Kiev. Uh, we're looking at pictures right now from CNN Live from Kiev, and it looks like from a high vantage point, there is a substantial amount of the downtown national complex that is on fire right now. This has gotten both violent and is, is turned into what could be a very dangerous political situation in Kiev. We're going to keep an eye on those developments. Uh, CNN is also reporting uh, new deaths as a result of the government crackdown on the opposition in Kiev. Again, we're going to keep an eye on that. That's something that's going to be uh, popping up in the news very, very quickly. Uh, go ahead, Carl Tubin. I have one more comment. Uh, in, in when, when White Eisenhower was elected president, the Republicans thought this was a great day. There's going to be a resurgence of Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he ignored the Republican National Committee, which meant he ignored the state party at that time. And <clears throat> it was because of that, part, probably because of that, that Kennedy was able to... Uh, to uh, to, to come out of the Democratic primaries and, and win the primaries and also win the election because I believe that at that point the Republican parties, state parties, were not as strong as they, they could have been had Eisenhower uh, uh, pump money into them and, and help. Well, yeah, now, for full disclosure, i, I got to announce the fact that uh, I am on the executive committee of the state Republican Party of D.C., uh, no, but the state is a, you know something genius? This can end really quickly. Uh, there is a state party level organization on both fronts. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have a state party in the District of Columbia. Nice least, job. There are at least six Republicans. They meet in the closet. <laughs> the wow. The Republicans meet in the closet. Can we get back to topic the here just for a second? Actually, they made it a table, round table in the other room. Actually, when I was in when I was in Vermont in college and very active in the Vermont Democratic Party, we used to say. Was Howard Taft running at that time? No, no. We used to say this is in the 50s. We used to say that there were more cows than Democrats 
and that the Democrats can meet in the telephone booth. Well, that's probably true. I'd uh, like to be that be that true in more places than it is today. <laughs> but Alan Moore, when we when we look at when we look at the influence, I mean, we go back and we look at the influence of the state parties. I mean, the state parties largely kept going the political boss mystique. You couldn't run unless the state party gave you the blessing. You had to be vetted by the state party. But nowadays, it seems anybody, we've seen actually catastrophic issues with the state parties not being involved, i.e. Delaware, i.e. Missouri, i.e. Indiana. Uh, is, is this, in fact, a sign of things to come? Or can the political credibility of the state parties come back and achieve what they want that? Well, I, I, think, I think we have to be careful and, and not treat them as a monolith. Um, there's a lot of, there's, there's, 50, there's 50 or maybe now 51 states. And, and, there are 54 and, Democratic and, parties and Republican parties. And they, Thank you. And they all get to decide. So, and, and sometimes the individual state will just screw up. There's a big debate in Virginia among Republicans. Should we have a primary system or should we have uh, a convention? And, and depending upon how you feel about the candidates in recent years, people are divided on that. And, uh, and, and that was, uh, that's been an issue in would some, ter- would in Terry some McCullough, of these other would, would Terry McAuliffe have been elected under the old <clears throat> party system versus the new? Had, had they we kept that going? We don't know. We don't know if, if Cuccinelli would have been the candidate or not. There's a good chance that he would not have been the candidate, but we don't know. And if, if it, it's conceivable that somebody else might have, might have beaten McAuliffe. McAuliffe wasn't the strongest candidate out there, as we, we talked about around here, but, but Cuccinelli provided was, was a, a, a huge target uh, of opportunity, and they could run a campaign that, was, uh, that helped uh, define Cuccinelli using his own words, understand, um, and, and, uh, and McAuliffe won a, a close election. Parties decide, and they will continue to evolve and decide, and some will go one way and some will go the other. What I don't think, though, is going to happen is that, is that parties are going to simply say, nuts and bolts are all we care about. They, the people who are involved in politics and involved in parties, they want to have some say about who the candidates are, too. So... I, I think that, that part is, is not going to change. Dan Lipner. For, forgive me for going a little highbrow on this at the moment, but and actually I'm, I'm appreciating the endorsing the smoke-filled room considering we're at Shelley at the moment. But the uh, – thanks for getting the joke. <laughs> the smoke-filled rooms have often produced very good candidates. No, and, and, but, but in order to have smoke-filled rooms, you also need – a basic infrastructure, and those basic infrastructures that allow for the democracy of ideas for people to actually engage require some nominal funds to keep the infrastructure going. And again, I can only speak to the democratic side of how the infrastructure used to work and how it now works. The democracy of ideas is now the democracy of money. And as Politico also reported, and the gentleman's name, who's going to do... Byron Tao. Byron this is the $100 million he's going to spend to fight global warming in the next election cycle? Yeah. Um, while, yes, it is a Democratic issue, the most important Democratic issue by most polling has actually been worker issues and income equality. Environmental issues, also important, not necessarily with the Democratic base. But Bob Hines, the, the, the Republican state parties have had the same problems 
when it comes to <clears throat> gay marriage, when it comes to abortion, uh, right to life versus pro-choice, the Republican Party has had the same issues of being almost antiquated in some of the positions and some of the platforms that they put out there for progressive uh, candidates to come up and rise up through the state party regime. Well, and isn't, isn't it interesting that uh, the more they talk about those things, the less votes they win. One of these days, they may get smart. Carl Tubin. <clears throat> Nobody said it, but I will say it, that if, if Virginia had a, a primary, Republican primary, and if Bowling had beaten Cuccinelli, Bowling very likely might be governor today. Bob Hines. There's no if. The reason there was a convention and not a primary was because the, the uh, party machinery was controlled by basically what we would call Tea Party people, decided that the way to win was to have a convention. And they nominated uh, the uh, candidate, Mr. Cuccinelli, they nominated as, as the lieutenant governor, a total right-wing uh, kook. And, uh, you know, they went down to defeat. If they would have had a primary, more people would have been involved in the process of picking candidates, which would have probably done a lot to help them get a better candidate. Bill Bowling would have been a much better candidate than Cuccinelli. I'm, I was surprised. It's close as Cuccinelli came. It just shows that a good candidate could have killed the governor who got elected. Dan Lipner. Uh, actually, my question is, Dave, I actually don't know this. Does Virginia require the state to fund, the, the party to fund the primary, or is the primary funding done by the state? That is, a, that is a good question. Uh, Which means, I, that, that is I a very good question. It, it varies think, by state. So. I think the state pays. I think there's a, I think, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, because when all is said and done, you're talking about, and I have a bit of experience in, in actually grassroots politics, the people who show up all the time are the people who are most vested and sometimes most vested in the craziest issues on the table. Yeah. And everyone at this table has dealt with those folks, and sometimes those issues are insane. And what do you mean sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> but Alan Moore. No, and, and that, and that's why I, if, if Virginia had decided to have a primary, there might have been a different outcome. But there wouldn't for certain have been a different outcome because it, it speaks again to that issue. The Cuccinelli people might have showed up and everybody else took a powder. We don't know. Now, we, I think that if, if, if Bowling had been the candidate, it would have been a closer campaign. It would have been an interesting campaign. But, but it, I am not convinced that he would have been the candidate if there had been a primary. Yeah, but, but, I but, wish there had been a primary. No, no, but, but let, let's go back. I mean, in all fairness, by the way, to, to my friends in the, in the Virginia GOP, they've always had a convention. They always have a convention uh, every year where they do select some of, some of the party line folks that they're going to put up, but it's always been done on a primary basis with the support of the GOP. This last turnaround, it was a convention-based nomination that they chose to do, but let's not take away the fact that they always have conventions. And, and that's fair, but while Cuccinelli was at least a legitimate candidate, the lieutenant governor's candidate, on the other hand, his name is escaping me at the moment, um, Jack, yeah, the, yeah Howard Jack, Jackson. Howard Jackson, Howard, Howard Jackson yeah. was, by any measure, an awful candidate. Well, that being said, when, but when we look at the role of the state party, uh, Carl Tubin, the federal guidelines governing 
the way the state party can use uh, can use its its staff. They can't use a lot of paid staff. Almost 99% of it's all volunteer based. In some instances, are the are the state parties hampered by those laws? Are they handcuffed a little bit in their ability to really be the true political machine? I don't think so. <clears throat> I mean, I don't. I, I really. I don't think so. Um, Why? Because you know, there. You have your main part of your campaign. You've got your campaign manager. You've got your treasurer. You've got all others. You've got the field operations. And there's enough money there to pay those people uh, uh, to do the work that they have to do. Not in Maryland. There's not. <laughs> you, I mean, Maryland's got. Uh, I'm pulling up the statistics right now. Uh, if you look at the money that Maryland has, Maryland can't pay its bills right now uh, at, at, the, at, at, the, at the state level, both the Democrats and the Republicans. What's, what's the money for Maryland? Uh, for, well, the, the uh, Maryland GOP state party has about $800 in hand right now. The state Democratic Party has a little bit more, but not much. You're talking maybe two or $3,000 available to it without the ability to – and that's a heavily blue state, Carl. That's your, that's your old stomping grounds. How, how does the state party stay relevant with those kind of numbers being against it? It stays relevant by having, a, having fundraisers and, and raising money in, in that way, and it will probably happen either – prior to the primary or right after the primary, and uh, it'll raise its money to run its general election uh, campaign. Alan Moore, did Susan... I was wondering whether the, whether the Democratic Committee in, in Maryland, uh, whether it pays any of its people. It pay, does. Does, it, does it pay a minimum wage? Does it, should it be unionized? <laughs> because it doesn't sound to me like they have any money to pay anybody anything. Wow, that's harsh. Alan Moore, I was going to ask you a very legitimate question until then. Uh, <laughs> Alan Moore, when you look at Citizens United, did Citizens United put uh, a handcuff on the state parties, in your opinion? It, no. Citizens United didn't put a handcuff. They already have a handcuff. There, there are limits to how much you can give to state parties, and just like there are limits you can give to, to, uh, to candidates, and not, not, in that, not, in that, not in that case, federal law. Uh, I mean, a lot of us think that, that, that the limits that currently exist, the federal limits uh, to parties and to, to, to individual candidates, should be increased. It would certainly in, it, uh, it, it improve the transparency of where money goes because all of that money has to be reported. Dan Lipner? Actually, there needs to be a clarification on that. I have background in FEC law. So the, the federal limits and state parties actually are very careful with this limited Literally, there are different accounts for the federal movement versus the state movement, the state movement dictating how they can do other things. Right. And this goes back to the coordinated campaign effort. And this, in 2004, uh, when Kerry was running for president, uh, now Senator Casey was actually the lead person in the coordinated effort. He was running for state treasurer. He actually outperformed uh, then-Senator Kerry for, on the ballot. And that coordinated effort was funneled through the state party, by part of FEC rules, but also the state rules on how they raise money. So it still creates a funding source for the state party to coordinate an effort. But, but, well, but I, I look at a state like Florida where I've got a bunch of experience. You look at Florida, for example, 
Florida has a $500 limit. Corporations can give, but they can only give $500. And none of that can be given to the party itself. It's got to go directly to the candidate. That's part of the government in the sunshine rule. So you've got several different disparate laws around it. But the bottom line, though, is, Bob Hines, we're not seeing money being driven to or being raised by the state parties in order for them to truly gain traction as a player in either national or state-level politics. Well, you know, I do not know a great deal about local state politics myself, but, you know, they need to have resources. There has to be some, there has to be obviously some money in the kitty some way or another. I don't know, and, and, and I am not an expert in, state, in, the, in the different state laws, but I don't know that any state says they can't raise money. I know they can raise money. I know there are limitations on it, but I am not aware of, the, of, of, of how much is limited. Congressman Al? I'm afraid that we're discussing this at a time of enormous transition. The Supreme Court has basically wiped out every campaign finance law that we've put in place since Watergate. And as we go, which has allowed the, 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 the Cook brothers and what have you to do all, all of their things, which would, were absolutely illegal prior to that time. Now, the state parties have to respond to that as well as the national parties and how they're going to do that. I suspect they're trying to figure that out now. So that we've been discussing history. The Supreme Court has wiped away all of that, and we've got to start all over again. Perhaps we can do it better. I doubt it. Uh, he, Dan Lipner? Dan doesn't agree with me. Go ahead. No, I, 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 I agree with you in part, but part of the issue is now the issues that raise money. It used to be the, the, the magic phrase and stealing from a different issue of law. It, it was a cross-subsidy that used to occur that allowed that if you wanted to contribute these ideas that may have been deeply personal to you, whether or not it's the environment, pro-choice, anti-choice, gun rights, whatever it might be, you still had to find other ways to funnel this money into the system that allowed other voices into the system. What it is now, and, and um, the uh, poor uh, Governor Huckabee got nailed with this, uh, pointing out somewhat correctly that women's issues have now become a, hu- a huge issue, and he spoke poorly about the issue. But yeah, it's an issue that has raised a lot of money for Democrats because women's issues encourage people to open their, open their wallets and, and donate to, to the mechanism. But that mechanism is now so, so narrow that it, it now ignores other issues that are at the table. Very good. Very good. Uh, we're going to let that be the last word. When we come back, uh, it's going to be our final half hour. It'll be a little bit of a free-for-all, talking about some of the topics that we were supposed to cover today, but we had such a good show, didn't really catch all of them. So this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the best political talk show you've never heard of, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., it's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know 
Shelly's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Capital, Washington, D.C., for our final segment of Backroom Politics. Uh, real quickly, there's breaking news coming out of Washington, D.C., and out of Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, CNN and the Washington Post are reporting that the U.S. government has entered into a deal with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, for those who don't know, there is one official prisoner of war being held by the Taliban in Afghanistan, he has been held for uh, almost two years, yeah, almost an American, an yeah, American, American soldier who has been held by the Taliban for now almost five years. Five years. Yeah. Uh, he is an official under the Geneva Convention, recognized by both as a prisoner of war. However, it has been a source of contention in the Pentagon and in the administration that there is still one American soldier left there in captivity. According to the deal, uh, according to both the Post and CNN, the deal is that for this American soldier, he will be released in return for, is it four or five, uh, four uh, terror suspects being held right now at Guantanamo Bay. This is a huge shift in policy for both administrations, both the Bush and Obama administration, who said that they would not deal with the Taliban as they are directly connected with a terror organization. Bob Hines, is this a good move on the part of the Obama administration? Or does this send a signal to other organizations that might want to take this tact? I think it's a good idea. I don't think America should ever, ever uh, let its anybody who captures an American official, soldier, whatever, I think they should not be let, if we can get them out, we should get them out. Those people are out on the front lines, 
they're doing things that are tough and difficult. We should make sure that if they're captured, we get them out of whatever we have to do to do it. I'm prepared to do it. I think that's the best thing to do from an American standpoint. Those are our sons, our daughters who are captive. We should get them back as soon as we can. Now, now putting my, putting my personal views aside, because I personally think this, too, is a good idea. There are critics right now that are coming to the forefront saying that, uh, Alan Moore, we're dealing with terrorists. We're negotiating with terrorists. They're going against the Reagan doctrine of we will not, deal with, we will not negotiate with those who cause terror on the United States. Is, is, is this a backtrack, do you think? From the Reagan doctrine, you know, we, we, we still don't have all the all the facts. It, it it is very it's a very risky business to pay ransom. We talked about it earlier today a little bit, and uh, how usually the administration, if it's going to pay ransom, tries to to have plausible deniability that they knew anything. Uh, in this case, if it's some guys from Guantanamo, it's pretty hard to say. Gee, we didn't cut that deal. Um, I don't know who these guys are. We, we've got a bunch of guys in Guantanamo that we don't know what to do with. Um, I'm guessing that 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 that, uh, uh, that it's not one of our higher valued um, uh, prisoners. It's it, it, we, my gosh, we want to get our guys out if they're if they're uh, being held prisoner, but we have to be really really careful. This has taken years to sort this out, so we're kind of damned if we do and damned if we don't. I, I don't think we always uh, should just capitulate. On the one hand, I think we have to keep the bigger picture in mind. There's this powerful desire, humanitarian-wise, to, to get our guys out. But this, this, we, we've got to be careful to not just trigger the, the notion that, gosh, all we can do, if we can get our hands on one of these guys, then we can write our own ticket. So it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. Congressman Al. Congressman Al. I agree with Alan, but I want to throw this into the our our thought process. We have been treating the Taliban for a long time as a terrorist organization, a long, long time. And as that time goes, they become more real and more of a major thing to deal with. And the idea that we can forever, forever not talk to them, not deal with them, not is probably naive. And it's probably now a time when we're going to have to treat them not as a separate state or anything, but but as a political party. But 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 as a but as a recognized a political state. reality that we need to deal with. No, yeah, Alan Moore, yeah, let me respond because I I think Al is absolutely right on that. I think that that before they were just this mindless, brainless, evil group of people who were our enemy in any and all ways. Um, in Afghanistan, they're talking to the Taliban. The, the, the Karzai government is talking to the Taliban, negotiating, gave up a bunch of prisoners. It's a different group now, and our interaction with them, as Al points out, is different. So that also is, is relevant. It's almost like, okay, there are identified enemy now. We can negotiate with them, and uh, things have changed. I agree with that. Dan Lipner. Well, it's also an acknowledgment back to international law since we had, had issues with the Geneva Convention with the aforementioned Guantanamo Bay, that actually treating our soldier in uniform and the army, and I said army, that they are fighting 
in response as a legitimate entity in doing negotiations as we've done in Korea, Vietnam, um, even back to Gary Powers shot down over Russia. This is a legitimate way of making sure. But Dan, but Dan we, we've largely this this administration, and the previous administration under the Bush regime, has often looked at the Taliban as non-uniform combatants, which have put them outside the code of the Geneva Convention. This is a direct 180 to saying that this is a terror organization. They backed Al Qaeda. They hid Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden for years. That this is in fact. A, a capitulation to what amounts to terrorists. And, and I would simply turn back to, a, starting in the Bush administration, a specious legal argument. It, it, this is a war we were fighting against another army, and to treat it as anything other was ridiculous. And making sure that the soldier can be treated as a soldier with the rights that come under the Geneva Convention, that he can be treated like a human being, and he can eventually come home to his family, and to the country where he served, is as much, we can expect the same of the people that we are fighting, they want the same thing. Wow. Uh, Bob Hines, <clears throat> I mean, when we see pictures of, of the soldier in captivity, it doesn't look like he's been mistreated. It doesn't look like that he's been tortured in any way. He actually looks somewhat healthy considering the circumstances he's been living in for the past five years. Uh, does, does this send a message to other quote-unquote terrorist organizations that if you're going to play this game, play under the Geneva Convention, you might be, we might talk to you as a legitimate party versus a bunch of thugs. It's pretty hard to read uh, the mindset of, of the Taliban, and I wouldn't pretend to do so. But it certainly, if this could become a template of how to what we have to, what we're willing to do, if they're willing to do it, and they treat our people right, and uh, we, we're not, you know, we're doing the same thing with them. They're in jail, but they're t- being taken care of. That's a good thing because, I mean, I agree with, I agree with, with everything that's been said. I mean, we're the Taliban is a political force, not just a bunch of crazy people in a, in turbans running around yelling, you know, you know, Allah, Allah. They are a political force in about 10 different countries in the Middle East, significant political force. They are as close to a government in some places as you can get. And I think we have to be, able, we have to be willing to negotiate with those people who uh, have something that we want and uh, they want something but, from us. But Bob, where's, where's the fine line between those who harbor terroristic organizations and those looked at as a legitimate uniform combatant? In the Middle East, I don't know that it's possible. It'd be case by case. Con- Congressman Al? It'd be case by case, and, and, and that involves a whole lot of external issues that have to be weighed. Alan Moore, you look, you, you look like you've got thought on this? No, no not really. I, I think we've pretty much covered it. Okay, Dan Lipner, last word. The uniform combatant argument is an argument that dates back to World War One, back when you had armies under under royal colors fighting on behalf of their sovereign this, this 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 is a this is a new world and to suggest that the Taliban was not fighting for as much as we might disagree with their ideals for ideals that were that were somehow uniform and cohesive is insane in, in, in you quote again George Herbert Walker Bush the new world order 
there are people across the planet that are organized that don't have money for uniforms that are still fighting for their ideals, including in the Ukraine, these kids that are out there protesting. And Would you consider them uniform combatants? Not at the moment, but this is just at the where's Where's the fine point? Where's that definitive line that you cross? We don't know if they have leadership yet. Well, anything, and, Alan Moore? And you take up arms. It's one thing to go march in the street. It's a very different thing to, to take up well, arms. Well, one, one man's terrorist is another kill. man's revolutionary. Well, I mean, you yeah, know, you, they, but I'm just Great saying, Britain. You were asking about Ukraine and a bunch of students walking in the street yelling and, and, and screaming. There's a difference between that and, and people who take up arms in, in an attempt to kill. Different like the IRA? It, 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 it doesn't yeah, mean... No, no, it, it doesn't mean that it's, that it's a clear and simple line. The line is moving. And the, the line is, is blurred. And, uh, but I think with regard to the Taliban, as we've said, we're now negotiating or, or supporting negotiations with Taliban leaders on a variety of issues. Right. So why shouldn't we then engage on, this, uh, on the issue of prison? Congressman Al. Our traditional view of how war is played and how we deal is, is totally irrelevant to what we're dealing with in the Middle East. The Middle East is a whole new way of dealing with it, and we've got to come up with new ways and new but, 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 but let me bring up this point, though, Congressman Al. You know, again, using the, you know, one man's revolutionary is another man's terrorist. You go back to our revolutionary war with the militias. We had ununiformed militias coming out of every state fighting against the British. The British would capture them. In some instances, they were hung as spies or treasonous or terrorists. Well, had, 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 had George not had a couple of lucky things, he would have been one of the ones hung. But let's, let's, not, let's make sure we don't conflate al-Qaeda with the Taliban, that it, which happens too often in domestic politics. Al-Qaeda, I would never in a, ever suggest is anything other than a terrorist organization. The Taliban has a, a distinct national interest at play that, again, while we might disagree with it, is nonetheless... A the National Party of Afghanistan. It is real. Yeah. It is real. They, they were in charge. We yeah. found it despicable, some of the things that they were doing while they were in charge, particularly the treatment of women, uh, the uh, views of education, and so on. But, but they, are, they are an Afghan... Uh, uh, entity, subgroups, regional leaders, but 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 Al Qaeda is 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 a bunch of people from anywhere who are willing to kill, die to kill, um, uh, simply to uh, to invoke terror, not looking for governmental control, but for chaos. Yeah. Right. In the Second World War and the First World War and virtually every war we've had before that, even even including Vietnam, we kind of knew who we were and who they were, us versus them. Right now, it's us versus a whole variety of thems, and they come in different strengths and different values and so forth. But, right. they, but they are a political force. Not, not just a military force. They are a political force. There is no governments in the Middle East in so many places that is working. But the fact of the matter is that the, the Taliban is, is, is in a political structure that has a military force to it. Right. And we have to deal with them. And if we don't know, understand that and deal with them, we're never going to get ourselves out of the Middle right. East. 
You right. have to do it. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, now it's my favorite part of the show where we call it Tell Me a Story, where we go around the table and we talk about the latest buzz, innuendo, political upheaval, and sometimes we even scoop the general media on some of the stories that we tell. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Come back to me. Oh, good Lord. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, last week, uh, the House passed the debt ceiling bill. Clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have put behind us the idea that we are going to uh, have struggles over deficit ceilings, uh, definite extensions. I think that I think people have begun to recognize that it that is a no-win game. Right. And that is all to the good. I can only hope that in the future that we will have a little bit more success uh, than we have had in the past. Uh, I know there are some conversations uh, going on on some issues uh, between uh, the uh, Speaker's office and, and the uh, White House. I hope they continue, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I don't hold out a lot of hope for anything big. No immigration bill, no major legislation. I think we may be able to get a few small things done. Wow. Dan Lipner, we're going to let you off on this one since this is new to you. But Oh, you got something? Dan Lipner, tell me a story. I I think the Washington Wizards are going to end up being a power in the East again, thanks to John Wall winning the slam dunk contest. You're you're, you're smoking crack. Uh, (laughs) Carl Tubin. Why not? Carl Tubin, tell me a story real quick. How far back can I go? No, you can't go very far. If it's in this decade, you're good. If there's a story today, I think that Ted Nugent uh, in Texas coming out for uh, Mr. Rabbit slurring the president of the United States. Are you taking my story? <laughs> uh, uh, is the biggest boost that Senator Wendy can have in her uh, her battle to uh, be the governor of Texas. Yeah, you're taking my story, but I'll follow up on that. Alan Ward, tell me a story. Um, we haven't heard about Chris Christie for a whole <laughs> for a whole day, and and. Uh, and when we don't hear about Chris Christie, that's good for Chris Christie. It's good for, um, it's good for America. Two weeks ago. <laughs> it's good for America, Alan. Two weeks ago. That's I, a very non-biased statement. I, I jumped all over him uh, for, uh, for this idiotic uh, press release in which he, he criticized his former high school classmate and a, an appointee at the Port Authority for sins committed while he was in high school and I said at the time that it was absolutely unforgivable and ridiculous then it turned out a few a few days later about five days the passage of of several days that that Christie said I never saw that release before it went out and he tried to dissociate himself from something his own staff put out so here's what this tells me if Christie if Christie is not implicated for, it's not demonstrated that he knew what was going on on the bridge when it was going on, that remains to be seen. If he wants any chance to be president of the United States, he's got a clean house. After all he had been through, for that to happen is absolutely unforgivable from the top down in terms of, of, I mean, from him, but all through his his enterprise. He's he was leading the pack like it, like like the the speed racers uh, in in so in Sochi 
where one guy's got the lead and suddenly he loses his balance and he's back in the middle of the pack, if not towards the end. Um, he really has to clean house if if he's given a clean slate. Very good. Congressman Al, real quick. Uh, Ted Cruz, it seems to me he's got two ways to go. Uh, he is going to disappear uh, over the next few years uh, and in kind of an embarrassing way. Or he will become this generation's Joseph McCarthy. Interesting. Uh, following off of what Carl was talking about, for those who don't know, uh, over I the past... that was Harry Reid. Uh, no, that, no, he, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. So, uh, for those who don't know, uh, in the past 48 hours, uh, rocker Ted Nugent, uh, avant-garde guitarist and just blatant Republican, uh, came out in a video and called the President of the United States a subhuman mongrel. Uh, I am here to tell you, as a Republican, Mr. Nugent, shut up. All you're doing is hurting the GOP chances of winning. All you're doing is creating more rhetoric that this country doesn't need. And, oh, by the way, Mr. Nugent, uh, he is still the seated president of this country. I have always been one to say that you can disagree with his politics. You can disagree with his positions. But he is still the elected leader of this country. A certain respect is due to the office, maybe not to the man, but to the office. Mr. Nugent, he is the president. He is a legal resident of this country, born in this country legally. Let it go. Go play guitar. Go shoot something on your ranch. But shut the hell up, sir. If you, Besides, want, to, if you want to debate me on this, I invite you to come on the air and talk to me about this in a civil manner. I don't think you'll take that up. And by the way, I'll be tweeting this tonight. Mr. Nugent, shut up. Now then, on behalf... I just wanted to say I don't like his music either. Nah, I I, I didn't didn't like him as a rocker. Uh, On behalf of Congressman Congressman Al Swift, the Honorable Bob Eines, Carl Tuvin, Alan Moore, special thanks to Dan Lipner. Dan Lipner is going to be joining us from time to time. If not more than that, uh, I am your moderator, Justin Russell. Uh, special thanks to our producer, Brent Sullivan, up in Syracuse. Can't wait for you to get back, Bo. You can follow us, by the way, on Twitter, at BackroomPolitik, or check out our website, www.backroompolitics.org. I am from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. We'll see you next Tuesday, folks. Have a great week. Bye-bye.